Good morning, Areola Bible Church. My wife and I have been praying about today for some time, and this isn't exactly how we saw this happening, but we are still excited to be candidating today, and I'm excited to get to bring you this passage of Scripture, and we are excited to get to meet with you all this afternoon in our Zoom meeting. We hope you all can make it for that. Uh, I wanted to introduce you to my family for those of you who did not get to meet us when we were in uh, church a few weeks ago. Uh, my wife, Erica, my oldest daughter, Kaylin, is on the left, Julia is on the right, Caroline is our three-year-old, and Abigail there is a newborn, and she will be a year, actually, year-old next week. So for those of you who didn't get to meet us, that is my family, and we all so enjoyed being there and getting to meet you all, and we look forward to the time when we can come back. So again, we thank you for this opportunity for today, and I'd ask you if you would bow your heads and join me in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for Areola Bible Church. Lord, I thank you for the people there who have a heart for you, who have a heart for serving you and for learning more about you. I pray that you would be with me this morning as I bring this passage from Matthew 14, that you would speak through me, Lord, help me to communicate clearly what you've put on my heart. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So our passage today is going to be Jesus walking on the water. We're going to be in Matthew 14, 22 to 36. So if you would, turn with me there. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the crowds away. After he had sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. But the boat was already a long distance from the land, battered by the waves. For the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified. And they said, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. Peter said to him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came towards Jesus. But seeing the wind, he became frightened and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand and he took a hold of him and said to him, You of little faith, why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind stopped and those who were with them in the boat worshipped him saying, You are certainly God's son. And when they had crossed over, they came to the land at Genesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent word into all the surrounding district and brought to him all who were sick. And they implored him that they might just touch the fringe of his cloak. And as many as touched it were cured. I don't know how many of you are golfers, but many years ago I would have considered myself an avid golfer. They say that golf is the perfect way to ruin a good walk. But it really is quite a discipline, something to be worked at, 
Something to always improve at. And I will tell you, it might be one of the most embarrassing things of my life to be golfing with a group of friends and to swing and miss at an object that is sitting perfectly still. I would have these beautiful practice swings and then I would step up to the ball and I would take a nice back swing and then as I would come through, I would stand up and I would mishit the ball or miss the ball completely. Something would distract me and I was not hitting the ball. What should have been the simplest part of the game was confounding me. Keep your eye on the ball. Now you have may, may have never swung a golf club in your life, but the principle of keeping your eye on the ball, on focusing what's, on what's important, is important in our spiritual lives. If we get distracted there on the fundamentals of our faith, we can miss out on the opportunities that God has for us. We can miss out on the fulfillment that comes from serving Him. We can miss out on the peace that comes from abiding in Him. The greatest distraction that we have in our spiritual lives is ourselves. We are all sinners, and at the heart of sin is pride. Pride that makes us want to rely upon ourselves, and reliance upon ourselves leads to fear. Fear that will cause you to falter. But how are we to keep focused? What does it mean in our spiritual life to keep your eye on the ball? In our passage today, Matthew 14, 22-36, we will see that to stay focused in our faith, we are to keep our eyes on Jesus. To stay focused in our faith, we are to keep our eyes on Jesus. So as we turn to Matthew 14, I want to go back just a little bit. It has been three weeks since Trevor preached on the feeding of the 5,000 and 4,000. And he rightly titled that sermon, The Role of a Disciple. This immediately follows that. That's our context. And it, I believe they flow together. That Jesus is testing his disciples there and he's teaching them something about the future and in the walking of the water, he is continuing that education of his disciples. But as this passage begins in verses 22 and 23, we see the need for prayer in our lives. That as we seek to stay on mission in our lives, it is vitally important that we take the time for prayer. Again, verse 22 says that immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the crowds away. So this is sort of an eat-and-run situation. You know, I've always felt there's something extremely special about the, the fellowship and the bonding that happens when we get together over food. But that's not Jesus' concern here. It says that he immediately after this that he made or compelled or urged his disciples to leave, to get into the boat and to go to the other side of the lake. Now I heard Pastor Ted mention in his Palm Sunday sermon that following the feeding miracle, that the crowds wanted to make Jesus king. 
There was something very messianic about feeding the people that Moses had provided manna from heaven and Elijah and Elisha had been able to provide food. And now here Jesus was providing food for the people and the people saw that and they wanted to take him and make him king. And we see that actually in John's account in chapter 6, verses 14 to 15, where it says, Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, This is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and to take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the, to the mountain by himself alone. Now, I read a commentary that said that Jesus probably made his disciples leave immediately after the feeding of the 5,000 because they would have been excited that the people wanted to make Jesus king. And I understand that. As I think about that, they saw something in Jesus. He called them and they followed. They, they saw that he was the Messiah. They believed that. And then since then, they've seen him speak the truth and they've seen him heal the sick. And they even saw him raise a girl from the dead. And now the people are seeing it too. And they're seeing it to such an extent that they're gathering in large crowds. You know, in 5,000 men, when you added women and children, it may have been 15 or 20,000. This is an enormous crowd of people that Jesus was actually trying to get away from people. And this huge crowd comes to him. So the disciples would have been excited. But throughout the Gospels, and especially in the Gospel of John, it is evident that Jesus is constantly in tune with the will of the Father. And that's what I really find fascinating, what we see here in verse 23. After he had sent the crowds away, he went up by the mountain, he went up the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. Friends, if Jesus needed to take time to pray, I think that should make us sit up and pay attention. While being fully man, he was still fully God. A distinct person of the Trinity, but still one with the Father. And even though he was one with the Father, he took time to pray to the Father. We are not told what Jesus prayed about here. I have read several places that speculate that he was praying for his disciples as he sent them into the storm. I think that given the context, it is just as likely that he was praying for himself. Remember, he has just come out of this, this feeding miracle and the people wanted to take and make him king. In a commentary I was reading, Charles Ellicott says that this unwanted stir of popular excitement not against him, but in his favor, this nearness to a path of earthly greatness, instead of which led to onward to the cross, he saw something like a renewal of the temptation in the wilderness, needing special communion with his Father that he might once again resist and overcome it. I won't tell you that I know exactly what he was praying about, but when Jesus taught us to pray, Praying for God's will to be done was right near the top of his list. And Jesus was on earth to do the will of the Father. He said in John 6.38, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. I believe that he was going to the Father in prayer for strength. Strength to do the Father's will. 
Strength to continue on. When I was seven years old, my dad started backpacking trips for our church. On these trips, we would hike somewhere between 50 or 60 miles over five days in the Sierra Nevada mountains, and we'd usually have a good group from the church go. My dad's name was Arch, and so the church labeled these trips the March with Arch. The first year, like I said, I was seven, we did Mount Whitney. Mount Whitney is the highest mountain in the continuous United States. It's roughly about only 66 feet higher than Mount Elbert here in Colorado. Anyways, I barely remember that trip, but I, I have done Mount Whitney a couple times since. And the day that you do this summit, you have to go up this pass, and it's brutal. It's switchbacks all day long, and it's steep, and you're up high, and the oxygen is thin, and then you have to drop your pack and go to the summit. And while I don't remember this, I've heard my dad tell this story many times, that as we made our way from the pass to the summit, that I was getting tired and that I had a hard time breathing and that he was using every trick in his book to keep me moving. And at some point, I think he said we were about a quarter mile from the top of the mountain, I just sat down and I said I couldn't go any farther. And my dad told the guys that we were with, he said, you know, keep going. I've run out of tricks. Craig and I will just wait here. And at that point, seven-year-old me piped up and said, well, Dad, why don't we pray about it? My dad said that it was quite humbling as the pastor in front of these other men of the church to have a seven-year-old son remind him about prayer. And again, I don't remember this, but he said that it was the most amazing thing that as soon as he finished praying, that I stood up and I literally ran the quarter mile to the summit of the mountain. I just needed prayer, prayer to continue. Now, while climbing a mountain at seven years old is not overcoming a spiritual obstacle in life, I believe that God gives us these moments that he proves himself faithful to us in the little things and so that we know when it comes to the big things that he is there for us. And remember that as we seek to stay on mission in our lives, it is vitally important that we take time to pray. Don't ever be too busy to get on your knees in prayer. Our next section of verses is 24 to 27, where we see that we can take comfort in who Jesus is. Verse 24, it says, But the boat was already a long distance from land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. Now in the previous verse, when Jesus is on the mountain and it says that it was evening, the Greek phrase there is very vague, that when it's giving us the time of day, that could be shortly before sunset to after sunset, and in some cases maybe even later. And I think from the context here, we're looking at sometime well after dark. And the boat has been, it's several miles from land. The term here in the Greek is stadia, which is 185 meters. And it's many of those out there. From Mark, I think we know the boat was about in the middle of the lake. So we're looking at it's about three and a half or so miles at least from land. And there they are in the middle of the lake and it's dark and it's, the wind has kicked up and the waves are battering the boat. 
When I think of being in the middle of the lake, I think one time when I was in high school, I tried to swim across a lake that was about two miles wide with a friend. And about halfway across, we stopped and we were trying to catch our breath. And it was actually somewhat terrifying feeling the burning in my muscles and looking to the shoreline and seeing how small those trees looked that stood so tall when I stood on the beach. I can't imagine being in a boat and it's dark and the waves are crashing against it. The word for battered here can be literally used to be tossed about or buffeted. In other contexts, that same word is used for tormented or in pain. This is not a large ship that they are in, and I'm sure this would have been absolutely terrifying. We continue in verse 25 where it says, And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. The fourth watch of the night would have been between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. So it is dark. It is stormy. And if we're to that point already, and we know that Jesus went up to the mountain to pray before evening, so before it even got close to dusk, and we're now at between 3 and 6 a.m., the disciples have been battling the wind and the waves and fear for a long time. And I'm sure they are exhausted. I think it is interesting to note here, I mentioned at the beginning that Jesus had tested the disciples with the feeding of the 5,000. And that was a very passive test. The disciples came to him and said, Lord, send the people away so they can eat. And Jesus said, you feed them. This is not a passive test. Jesus has sent them into the storm alone. And they have been getting tested for hours. But then Jesus shows up. Their Lord shows up walking on the water. You have to take everything you think you know about the constraints and the dangers of the world around us and you have to throw them out the window because our Lord (coughs) is in charge of it all. And that is what he is showing his disciples. Jesus was showing them again that he had power even over nature. In verse 26, It says that when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and they said, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. Even after all the disciples had seen in their time with Jesus, all of the miracles, they had seen him calm a storm once before. They failed to assume that what they were seeing was him. Now, the Greek word phantasma is translated here as ghost, but a better translation is apparition. When I think of ghosts, I think of the haunted mansion in Disneyland where there's all these floating things floating around. And, but those look like people, and that's sort of what we think about when we think of ghosts. With an apparition, they didn't know what they were seeing, but they knew it was something to be afraid of. They were sure that this was something else come to get them. Again, they failed to assume that it was Jesus there to rescue them. But Jesus reassures them in verse 27. Immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. Do you see who I am yet? Where the text here says that it is I, 
is actually the Greek phrase ego emi, which means I am. It is the same Greek construction that Jesus uses in John 8.58 when he claims to be God. There in that verse, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Jesus saying that to the people caused them to want to stone him. They knew exactly what he was saying when he said, I am. He was using a title from the Old Testament that was reserved only for God. So as he walked out on the water, he was revealing his deity by his actions, and he was also asserting his deity when he calls out to them. Take courage. Do not be afraid. I am. I remember when I was 15, I was out running errands with my dad. And I know I was 15 when this happened because I, I was not yet 15 and a half because that's when you could get your permit to drive. And we stopped to get gas in our full-size van and my dad handed me the keys after he got the pump going and he said, I'm going to walk over to Walmart. I want you to, when this finishes up, you know, finish up with the gas and then pull the van through the car wash and then go park over by Walmart. Now as a 15-year-old who didn't have his permit yet, I thought I was a pretty big deal getting to do this. It was one of those car washes that had a rail as it came in, and you were supposed to drive into it and stop at a certain point. And our van was big. It was this full-size GMC van, and I was struggling to get it in there straight. And at one point, I turned the wheel too hard, and I gave it too much gas, and the van jumped out of that railing, and it smashed into the side of the equipment inside this car wash. I don't think I broke anything serious. I broke a piece of plastic that covered something and I scratched up the van. But at 15, I was, I was terrified that I had done something terribly wrong. And so I pulled the van out without getting it washed and I ran into the gas station and I told the attendant what happened. And when he found out that I was not, not even old enough to drive, he started screaming at me and he started threatening me. And I ran away. Not to get away from him per se, but to go get my father. And why did I do that? Why did I want to go get my dad? Just because he was my dad? No, I wanted to go get him because I knew who he was. I knew that he would not be pushed around, that he would stand up for me because he loved me. We can take comfort in Jesus because we know that he is, I am. And he proved it over and over in his ministry. He ultimately proved it from, by rising from the tomb. But the thing is, to truly take comfort in Jesus being God, we have to more, know more than who he is. We also have to know what he is like. Just as I know the kind of man my dad is, there are some people that their dad is the last person they would run to. But my dad was the first person. And that's who God should be for all of us. And we should know why. We should know about his love for us and who he is. And we find out about that in his word. Now we move on to our next section here in verses 28 to 33 where Peter becomes our example of what fear can do in our lives. And he highlights our need to tune out distractions. 
Verse 28, Peter said to him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. It's interesting how this begins. We know that Peter was brash and that he often spoke and acted before he thought. But I really do find it interesting that Jesus calls out to the disciples, it is I. And Peter's response is, is that really you? Surely Peter knows Jesus' voice. Even over the wind and the waves, Jesus has made himself known to his disciples. So it's so strange here that Peter's statement seems to be like a complete lack of faith in who Jesus was, but he immediately follows that with an enormous step of faith. He said, come, and Peter got out of the boat, and he walked on the water, and he came towards Jesus. But seeing the wind, he became frightened, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me! Peter does it. He gets out of the boat. He walks on water. What that first step must have been like. For all of Peter's apparent faults and shortcomings, his faith, at least to start here, has to be admired. While he did falter, none of the other disciples took that first step. We also see here that our Lord, who controls nature, is also able to hold us up as well. As long as we keep our eyes upon him. But Peter did not keep his eyes on Jesus. He saw the effects of the wind all around him. As he is moving towards Jesus in an incredible act of faith, he becomes distracted by the winds and the waves and the fear. He loses sight of who Jesus is because of his troubles. His faith is shaken and he knows that under his own strength, he cannot stand up to what he is facing. And he sinks into the stormy sea. Now, fun fact about me, I grew up in Southern California. And throughout my teenage years, I surfed as often as I could. And as I got older, my confidence grew and my ability, and I, I enjoyed being out there in the bigger waves. And one day, I remember we were getting a particularly large swell. And I paddled out into what we would have called double overhead waves. These were 10 to 12 foot high waves. And the first one that I attempted to catch, I fell badly on it. And the wave pummeled me. And I remember being underneath the surface of the ocean and it felt like I was in a washing machine. I was getting turned and twisted and pushed. And eventually I came to the surface gasping for air just in time for the next wave to push me under. And this cycle got repeated several times before I was able to finally make my way to shore and catch my breath. And I can tell you that I can't remember a time ever before that or since then when I have been more scared for my life. And that's what I think of when I think of Peter's fear here. I understand the distraction. I get the fear. But what we have to remember when we face those things in our life, our metaphorical storms, that what are the wind and the waves to the one who can walk on water? Peter failed to see Jesus standing there before him, the one who was claiming to be I am. Instead, he focused on the waves. Peter had nothing to fear, and we need to know that we have nothing to fear as well. 
Peter does recover well. He does recognize his inability. He does remember that Jesus is standing there and he calls out to him, Save me, Lord. I can look back with sorrow at a number of times in my life that I just wish that I had cried out immediately as I began to sink. In verse 31, it says that immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, You of little faith, why did you doubt? How crushing it must have been for Peter to hear Jesus say that. Have you ever done something, you felt like you were doing something well, and maybe you messed up part of it, and you feel like you should still get credit for what you did well? Jesus doesn't give him any pats on the back for getting out of the boat. Jesus doesn't mention any of the other disciples that didn't get out of the boat. He chides Peter for his lack of faith. I think that's what we need to take notice of here. That we need to have a faith in our Lord that is strong because He is worthy of a faith that is strong. Jesus was showing Peter that He was worthy. But Peter took his eyes off of Him. He got distracted. As I mentioned, I believe this whole experience for the disciples was a lesson. A lesson on what it would be like after Jesus was gone. A lesson to learn to trust Him. A side note here, something that I've seen several other places in the Bible. I think that we are incredibly vulnerable after a great victory. While Peter's step of faith was just a momentary high of accomplishment, you have to think he was feeling pretty good about himself as he started to make his way towards Jesus. And I think at that time when we are doing something well for the Lord may be our most vulnerable time to come under attack. We need to be focusing on what the Lord is doing through us and not our own accomplishments. It says then in verse 32 that when they got into the boat, the wind stopped. Jesus proves his power over nature here again, stopping the wind. Who but God could stop the wind? Like this quote I found from David Turner, he says that Jesus' messianic powers must be seen against the background of the Old Testament. To walk on the sea and to still a storm are prerogatives that belong only to God. He quotes several verses there, Job 26, Psalm 65, and 89. All these verses are of God controlling nature. And so for the disciples and the other Jews who would read this, that knew their Old Testament, they would see Jesus as God through these miracles. And the disciples finally come up with the correct response. In verse 33, it says that those who were on the boat worshipped him, saying, you are certainly God's son. They got it. They saw him walk on water. They saw him enable Peter to walk on water. And they rescue Peter as his faith failed him, and then they saw him calm the storm. You all have been going through Matthew. Do you remember back in Matthew 8 when Jesus calmed the storm in that chapter? The disciples had to wake him up. They were afraid for their lives in the boat. And Jesus calms the storm, and their response was that time, the men were amazed and said, what kind of a man is this? that even the winds and sea obey him. What kind of a man 
is this? They knew he was the Messiah, but they were still focused on Jesus being a man and not also being fully God. But now the light comes on. They understand who he's claiming to be and they got it. He's the Son of God. He is the I Am. I want to quickly look at the conclusion of this chapter. Uh, The last three verses here, 34 to 36. When they had crossed over, they came to a land at Genesaret. It was on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. And when the men on that place recognized him, they sent word to all that surrounding district and brought to him all who were sick. And they implored him that they might just touch the fringe of his cloak. And as many as touched it were cured. Uh, Matthew quickly tells us what happened after Jesus' miracle of walking on the water and calming the storm. This brief story gives us another glimpse into the way that the people are reacting to Jesus. It seems as though he was immediately recognized and the word got out very quickly. You remember earlier in Matthew before the feeding of the 5,000, it mentioned that Jesus was actually trying to get to a secluded place, but the multitudes followed him. And when he arrives here in Genesaret, the people come quickly. The touching of the cloak here is reminiscent of the woman with the blood disorder in Matthew chapter 9. I thought that was interesting, and as I was reading, I found several commentators who assumed that the news had spread of what had happened there, and that these people knew that if they just touched his cloak, that they would be healed. Something I found intriguing as I read the passage and as I read through the commentaries, um, especially in light of what our passage will be next week, is that the religious elite, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they would have never mingled in a crowd. They would have never let people who they viewed as lower, which was pretty much everyone, ever touch them. Because of all their ritual laws, There were so many things that could make you unclean. They didn't want to make themselves unclean by possibly touching someone else who was unclean. But here Jesus is walking through the crowd, letting every sick and lowly person touch his cloak. And something I was thinking about that I I couldn't really find anything on, but I just thought it was interesting to think about that. What do you think the disciples' reaction was to this? I think we've seen them react in different ways to different crowds, but as they come off the lake, the experience of the last day for the 24 hours for them to see the feeding of the 5,000, to see Jesus walk on water, to be saved from the storm, to know that Jesus was the Son of God, not just a man, I wonder what their reaction was to the people. So look at this passage. To Matthew's original audience, I think the big idea here is somewhat twofold. I believe that he is continuing his theme of presenting Jesus as King, as the Messiah. Matthew's Gospel presents this theme as an evangelistic tool to the unbelieving Jews. When I was 10 years old, I went to Israel, and I remember that I believe we were near the Wailing Wall, and there was this huge banner hanging across a courtyard. And someone in our group asked our guide, they said, what does that banner say? And our guide said, it says, the Messiah is coming. And even at 10, I thought, how sad. 
He came over 2,000 years ago when he was born in Bethlehem. But they are still awaiting a Messiah. And so it was those Jews that Matthew was trying to reach with this message of Jesus coming as King and Messiah. And in this passage, Matthew presents Jesus as a king that not only has authority, but as a king that is able to exert that authority over nature, over everything that they knew. He's not just a king or a messiah. While he is both of those things, he is God. And that's what Matthew's pointing to here. Secondly, I believe that Matthew was written to encourage an audience of believers to strengthen their knowledge about who this Jesus was that they believed in. To spur them on their faith. And early in the church, there was a lot of persecution and trials, and Matthew shows Jesus as a rescuer, a help in time of need. I think that was the the lesson to his disciples here. It was about faith. It was about knowing who Jesus was. It was about when he was gone that they knew they could still count on him. And so could everyone else who had believed in him. For our application, I have focused on the big idea of keep your eyes on Jesus. As we seek to grow as disciples nearly 2,000 years after Christ ascended into heaven, this is just as relevant today. And I think it is our key to growth. So how exactly does this work? You know, when I was struggling to keep my eye on the ball when I was golfing, I thought it was really funny. I had advice from all of these people. I had some people telling me that if I cocked my head to the left, that it wouldn't be as bad. And other people told me that I should count down from 99 by fours. And someone else said I should stand farther from the ball. And someone else said I should move my left foot, right foot. My swing was, it looked like something else, but none of it helped. And as I look at spiritual things today, it's almost that same way. You're you're getting influences from everywhere. Whether it's Facebook theologians or things you hear on TV, people telling you what true spirituality is or true happiness. In my estimation, we have to focus on what God's Word tells us. So let's review the three points we had from the text today. And I want to tell you some about my story. When I think about mission and focus and how it's vitally important that we take time for prayer, I think back to a little over five years ago when I decided to change the mission of my life into serving God in vocational ministry. I want to tell you as briefly as I can about the journey that has led us to Areola Bible Church today. Seven years ago, I was working as a funeral director at four funeral homes that were owned by my grandfather. And for several years, I had sort of been in a downward spiral. I was a believer, but I had taken my eyes off of Jesus, and I was sinking. And I eventually ended up clinically depressed. Though the ministry, through the ministry of one of my pastors and others, I turned my eyes back to Jesus. I sought his help, and things began to improve in my life and in my marriage. But it was slow. And during this time, I was looking to leave our family business, but I could not find anything that excited me. Nothing drew me. As miserable as I was there, nothing was pulling me out. 
And I was about ready to go down to the closest military recruiting office when my dad suggested I look into becoming a chaplain in the ministry. As a pastor's son, I had never even really considered any kind of ministry. But when he said that, I I felt this spark inside of me. Something lit up. I told Erica that I wanted to leave the funeral home and go to seminary, and she replied that she had been praying for some time that God would bring a major change in our life. I don't think seminary was the change she was expecting, but I believe that prayer started this journey. Number two, we can take comfort in who Jesus is. You know, the last five years has not been easy for our family. We uprooted our young family and we moved to Indiana. My mother died three days after my first semester of seminary. I had an infection in one of my fingers that kept traveling up my arm. In over nine months, I had two surgeries and I was hospitalized four times. All of this while trying to go back to school after having, it was over 10 years since I'd gotten my bachelor's degree. And while struggling to make ends meet and learn how to learn again, there have been times during the last five years where we have struggled to see how God has been working. And there have also been times, these moments where it's this beautiful revelation of what He is doing in our lives, of what He has done, and we see a glimpse of what He will be doing. We take comfort in what Jesus has done for us and what God has done for us. Number three, tune out the distractions. In September of 2018, we moved to Arizona where I had accepted a nine-month position as adult ministries pastor. That nine months got extended to 16, and Eric and I, you know, we really loved it there. We felt like we were making roots. Um, We had friends. We both felt like we had profitable ministries that we were touching people's lives. We loved the church. We still do. It is a wonderful church, and I take so many great experiences away from it. But in November, when I sat down with our lead pastor, a man who I have the utmost respect for, And he encouraged me to find a role where I could preach. I felt crushed in many ways. I felt I didn't want to leave. I didn't feel like I was done. I I was confused. And as someone who has struggled with depression, you know, I never got back to that state of being depressed. But I think you always have those thoughts in your head of, of you're not good enough. You're not this. You're not that. And as those things were going through my head, I was distracted from what was to come. I had moments where I saw the great opportunity laid ahead of me. I had felt for some time that while I didn't have a ton of experience preaching, that I loved doing it. And that how neat would it be to get to share every week with a church body what I was learning from God's Word. But then the next moment, in the blink of an eye, I was back to focusing on what I would miss from here. Or I'd feel like I wasn't equipped. 
As I look back, I see there are many things that help us block out the distractions. I want to focus on one that I see as being key in our lives. As I look back, what helped both of us tune out the distractions and focus back on Jesus and our mission, my wife's and I mission to serve him, it was our church. And Paul says in Ephesians 4.16, where he's speaking of the church there, he says that the whole body causes the growth of the body. We help each other grow to stay focused. A quick aside there, I have nothing to concrete to back this up, but I think it's interesting that Peter sank when he got out by himself. That God created us to be in fellowship with one another and with him, but also with one another, and that there is strength in that. And that is how he created our faith to be, to be built up by one another. And Peter's lone wolf act left him sinking. You know, on my own, without the church, I would be sinking too. Because as I look back, I see that Erica and I have both grown through our roles in the church, and therefore we're more equipped to help each other. In addition to that, over the last year and a half, we have poured ourselves into others who are now pouring back into us, encouraging us in the journey that is to come and keeping us focused on Jesus and glorifying him. And so here we are. We have come through many storms over the last five years, and I'm sure there will be many more. But God answers prayer He has been faithful to show up. And the blessing of His church has enabled us to focus on Him and to serve Him. To cut out the distractions in our lives. Now, I don't know what storms you are facing, but I can attest from God's Word and from my own life that He is faithful. And He has proven it over and over and over again in my life. You know, we have been praying for the right opportunity to serve for some time now. And it is beyond humbling to be considered for this position. We so enjoyed our time there last month, getting to know the leadership of your church and meeting many of you. And I would say we just, we felt this connection. We felt like Areola Bible Church was a place where we could joyfully serve our Lord. It is now our prayer that we are called to come and to serve you. To grow in our knowledge and our fellowship as we encourage one another. And as we keep our eyes upon Jesus. Would you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you that you sent Jesus. You sent him to die for our sins, but we can also see in his life something about who you are. And that you are a God who loves us and cares about us and wants to calm our fears and wants to see us through the storm. You show up, Lord. We thank you for that and we pray for strength as we, we try to keep our eyes on you. Strengthen our faith in each and every one of us as we face trials. Uh, it seems like the whole world is facing a trial right now and it's made things interesting with working with the candidacy of the church and the other things. But Lord, we know that you're in this and that you're with us and we thank you for that. Thank you for this passage of Scripture and what we've learned. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.
Thank you again so much for the opportunity to bring you this passage today. And I look forward again to the meeting this afternoon on Zoom. We hope you all can be there. We look forward to you getting to know us better through your questions. And uh, we look forward to hopefully getting to be up there and meet you all again in person soon. So God bless and have a wonderful day.